We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. I want to welcome you in tonight if you're out in the hallway and welcome you online if you're if you're online, welcome again as well. I was thinking uh, tonight, if you have a question you would like to ask the pastor, uh, we can make opportunity for that. I know there's obviously some uh, upheaval in the world that may uh, induce some question, and uh, so I want to offer that as well to those that are online. If you do have a question, we'll try this if you uh, just put it in a comment in the YouTube uh, John has that handy over there and can relay those questions to us. That won't be right now, though. We're going to uh, pray and have uh, some songs, and then we'll have Bible reading and come to that. I just wanted to say that early to give you a chance at some questions. Um, if you don't have access to that, uh, well, if you're here, obviously, you can ask in person here. And uh, I don't have, don't have my phone with me, so I can't ask you to send me a question to my phone. So... Uh, we'll have to do it that way, all right? All right, our scripture reading is going to be in Second Chronicles this evening. Second Chronicles and the first chapter. Here's a narrative you can apply to yourself and hopefully live it out for all of your days a little better than the character in this text. Second Chronicles chapter 1. Now Solomon, the son of David, was strengthened in his kingdom, and the Lord his God was with him and exalted him exceedingly. And Solomon spoke to all Israel, to the captains of thousands and of hundreds, to the judges and to every leader in all Israel, the heads of the fathers' houses. Then Solomon and all the assembly with him went to the high place that was at Gibeon, for the tabernacle of meeting with God was there, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness." But David had brought up the ark of God from Kirjath-Jearim to the place David had prepared for it, for he had pitched a tent for it at Jerusalem. Now the bronze altar that Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, had made, he put before the tabernacle of the Lord. Solomon and the assembly sought him there. And Solomon went up there to the bronze altar before the Lord, which was at the tabernacle of meeting, and offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. On that night, God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask, what shall I give you? And Solomon said to God, You have shown great mercy to David my father and have made me king in his place. Now, O Lord God, let your promise to David my father be established, for you have made me king over a people like the dust of the earth and multitude. Now give me wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people, for who can judge this great people of yours? And God said to Solomon, Because this was in your heart, and you have not asked riches or wealth or honor or the life of your enemies, nor have you asked long life, but have asked wisdom and knowledge for yourself, that you may judge my people over whom I have made you king, wisdom and knowledge are granted to you. And I will give you riches and wealth and honor, such as none of the kings have had who were before you, nor shall any after you have the like." 
So Solomon came to Jerusalem from the high place that was at Gibeon, from before the tabernacle of meeting, and reigned over Israel. And Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. Also the king made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stones, and he made cedars as abundant as the sycamores which are in the lowland. And Solomon had horses imported from Egypt in Keva. The king's merchants bought them in Keva at the current price. They also acquired and imported from Egypt a chariot for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. Thus, through their agents, they exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. Well, various, uh, uh, very industrious and, uh, um, how can I say, uh, aggressive business people they were, huh? uh, doing that importing and exporting work. But uh, Solomon asked God for wisdom. I have uh, done the same for myself, and I pray that you have also, because although you may not have people as the dust of the earth to lead, you certainly have things in your own life that need wisdom from above. So I trust that God will grant you that wisdom. We're going to invite the young people to go to their class upstairs. They have some Bible memory work to do and some fun to have, I understand. So we'll let them go. Don't all you adults go now either. No fun for you. (laughs) Okay, very good. Well, I offered an opportunity uh, earlier on for anyone to ask a question if they had one, a scriptural question or somehow related to scripture. Uh, I give that opportunity just now if you would like to ask a question. We don't have any online, do we, John? No, no, no questions in the online comments, so nothing there. <clears throat> Give you another second to. Yes, sir, you have a question. I see that. Okay, Isaiah 53. <clears throat> we'll see how off guard we are. And uh, if we can't answer now, we'll give a Good try at it another time. Okay, we know this to be talking about the Messiah, yes. Yes, did the Jewish people uh, misidentify the servant in this passage? They talk about the servant as Israel. Because sometimes in the book of Isaiah, Israel is the servant, the nation is is designated as a servant under that figure, but that's not the case here. This is an individual man, most certainly. The question is, have I heard of other uh, professing Christians call or or suggest that Isaiah 53 is not talking about the Messiah, but rather about Israel as a servant? I can't dredge up any in my memory where that is the case. I, I, I could possibly imagine that some Messianic-type uh, Jewish professing Christians would could say a similar thing, but even that would be a stretch, I think. The fact that you would have a Messianic Jew would indicate that they're seeing the Messiah in those key passages in the Old Testament that uh, a Jewish person would not see. And I think the 
The problem for the Jewish faith is that they're really committing the fallacy of special pleading to, to not make this be the Messiah. You know, to say it's anything but that because we can't have that. It's just impossible in their minds, so they have to find a way around it. But it's very strained logic at best to me. Well, there's so the the follow-on statement for those of you that are online is that the understanding of Drew the questioner is that before Messiah came, they understood this to be a messianic passage. Afterwards, not. Um, that paints it a little too broadly. I think that the faithful Jewish person back here would recognize, and in Isaiah's time, would recognize this as speaking of the Messiah, and the faithful Jewish person after would also, but of course they would have begun to follow the Messiah at that point and become Christians. There were, however, as you know from um, our, our section in uh, Matthew 15, uh, where in, uh, what's the, what is the section? I lost track of it in my mind because I'm thinking about Isaiah 53. It's Isaiah 29 where in Isaiah 29 in the scriptures, it's Isaiah prophesying to this people that, you know, they draw near me with their lips, their mouth, but their heart is far from me. So there were people even back in these, these days who may or may not have identified this as the Messiah, but they had no real connection to the God of Israel. They were in unbelief, even at that time. So... Um, there certainly could have been somebody who would have read this and said, well, that refers to the nation even back then. Um, so follow on to that, Drew. Yeah, I did, have you heard of, of professing Christians that s- suggest this? Oh, yeah, I mean, this is, this is universally among Christians as far as I know. Certainly faithful Christians, this is recognized as a messianic prophecy among the highest uh, or most clear of them all. Yes, I understand. But professing Christian, you know, somebody that's not a a Jewish uh, adherent or Muslim or whatever, right? So, yeah, that's, uh, that's a bit disappointing, isn't it? Yes. You have a question. Yes, I don't think I really gave a report on that. Uh, I was asked about a recent meeting that I had with uh, someone for evangelistic purposes, and I don't want to publicize that out to the world, um, but uh, it was a good meeting. Um, it was uh, at times frustrating, you know, because there's a back and forth like this. Uh, we found that the uh, and I say we because Brother Darius and I have found that there are a lot of, how can I say, clever clever uh, reasonings or substitutions that are in the, uh, in the, in I guess this version or modern version of the Islamic faith that tries to make it look very much like Christianity, but it's not. Um, and uh, one statement that was very stark that was made is uh, from the... Uh, Islamic teaching that it was 
absolutely unnecessary that Jesus die. Yeah, I know. Pick up your jaws off the floor. Uh, that is, so it's an odd situation because you have a kind of a claim on that side that, well, this is very similar to Christianity. And then you have these kind of statements that make it obvious that it's very dissimilar from Christianity. So it's, it's hard to process from our from our vantage point. Um, it's certainly out of, out of step with Scripture. In fact, uh, Luke chapter 24, for example, let's just turn there and I'll find the verse that I'm thinking of um, in Luke chapter 24, um, verse 25, Jesus is speaking to the men on the road to Emmaus and he says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe and all the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? It was necessary, in other words. It behooved him. Uh, That's a language from the King James and Hebrews, but it was necessary. It was required that the Messiah suffer in the place of his people. The Old Testament is chock full of that. You You can't wash that away by claiming the Bible is corrupted somehow. And the New Testament is full of this. Now, somebody said, could God have saved us without uh, the death of Christ? And the the short answer is no, he could not have. Uh, We needed to have an infinite, perfect sacrifice for us to die in our place. And one like us and one who could die, so you add up all those things and you have a perfect fit in a God-man Messiah who came to do that. We say in theology that upon God's decision that he would redeem humanity, There was, therefore, a consequent necessity that Christ die for our sins. He didn't have to save anybody, right? Would you agree with that? God's free, and he could choose to allow us to perish in our iniquities. He is that free that he could do that. Now, he has a great compassion and love as well, but in view of the decision of the decree to save humanity, there was a consequent necessity that Christ die Uh, for our sins, and that is just how it is. And, of course, we know the the, uh, kind of axiomatic principle that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And so in a system in which there is no shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. There is a kind of an idea that we could sweep them under the rug, we could hide them, we could, you know, put them under the mere mercy of of, uh, the deity, and he could just forget about them, but... The reality is the Bible is very clear that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Sin is a capital offense. You understand that? It's a capital offense. So you think of yourself as a capital criminal, a criminal worthy of capital punishment. And so that's what the Lord took in our place. It behooved the Christ to suffer. There's another verse that I was trying to think of, and it's just escaping me right now, but talking about the necessity of the death of Christ. So to say that the Death of Christ is unnecessary is a shocking, uh, shocking uh, statement against the Holy Scriptures. So that's one example of, of that. Anybody else have another question this evening? Nothing online still? All you people online are just sitting there watching. We're, we're asking for active participation here. Boy, if it's hard to... If it's hard to get people in this audience to talk, just think how hard it is to get those folks online to talk. Yes, sir. Well, I don't know what 
Yes, very good. The question is, can I give any insight or encouragement in light of what's going on in the world? And uh, yeah, I wish that I had a, um, uh, you know, a full-scale uh, encouraging message for you. Um, I'm trying to find uh, the passage that I'm thinking of here. Oh, let's see. Sometimes your mind goes blank on the order of these minor prophets, you know. Um, and the, the first passage that I thought of when I uh, heard of this, uh, this stuff happening in uh, Ukraine was the book of Habakkuk. And, uh, I, you know, the utter injustice of the situation there that's happening is very troubling. However, Habakkuk already dealt with a situation that was just like that in this sense, the burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. And he says, O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear, even cry out to you violence and you will not save? Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore, the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, perverse judgment proceeds. He's looking at a very... Um, very evil situation in which his country exists. And then uh, the Lord replies, Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days which you will not believe. Uh, And he says, I'm going to bring the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation, and they're going to come upon the nation of Israel. And uh, and that's, that's that's an answer to Habakkuk's question. We have an evil nation here. What are we going to do about it? Well, then Habakkuk says, Now, wait, wait a minute. This is not good. So he asked a question in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We, we shall not die. He's relying on the promises of God there that the nation will not be extinguished. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O Rock, you have marked them for correction. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he is. So it occurred to me as I thought about it that, you know, God may be using the nation of Russia as an instrument of judgment against the nation of Ukraine. I mean, lest we forget, the nation of Ukraine is not um, a nation full of Sunday school teachers. They have abortion there, and they have other things going on there. There's corruption there, and there's... You know, all, you know, I mean, any sin that you can imagine that people have in the world, they, I'm sure, have there, and maybe more than shocking than what you realize. That's not to make an apology or a defense, in other words, of anything that Russia has done. But it may well be that the Lord has used this as an instrumentality of his judgment. We don't know for sure, but certainly God is in charge of it, and his, his decree has permitted this to occur, to bring this calamity upon that nation and really upon the world. So that's one perspective that may be somewhat helpful to you. This is not a new problem. This is an old problem. It's a repetitive problem over the years of human history. Um, you know, the other, another thing that comes to mind, obviously, is just the vast scale of human suffering that is uh, worthy of our weeping, worthy of our souls being burdened, because uh, hundreds and thousands, I suppose, of people are dying in uh, what is obviously, to me, unnecessary violence. Everybody was doing just fine six months ago. You know, they didn't have to 
go tromping into somebody else's property and, and uh, you know, ruining lives and, and uh, buildings and infrastructure and all of that. So the, the, uh, the human cost and the burden of that is, is heavy on, on our hearts. We have to remember, though, that, uh, as I, and I, I indicated this morning from Psalm 2, you know, the nations are still raging and they don't want God to be in charge. You know, there is no thought of God in their minds. And, you know, like asking, you know, should God, does God want us to do this? I mean, the obvious answer, the answer would be no, he doesn't. There are other means by which we can uh, care for our national security issues and, and that sort of thing. But there's, a lot of, there's also a lot of lying going on, a lot of revisionist history, a lot of just crazy stuff that uh, is, is hard for us to understand. Another thought, Drew, that comes to mind is you can't assign logical and rational reasons for a tyrant doing irrational and illogical things. Um, and we don't know how this will turn out. Um, Psalm 103.19 says that the Lord has set his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over everything. That is still true. He moves among the affairs of men as he wishes as he pleases to do. Um, we don't know how this will turn out. I mean, this could be that, you know, uh, it's an overextension of the uh, Russian military and political, uh, you know, uh, apparatus, and it just could lend, to, uh, you know, lead to ruination of that nation or great devastation for it. Um, it certainly, you know, could be the other way around, and they could prevail in this uh, affair and uh, add the territory of Ukraine to their uh, to their little empire. Um, so we don't know. Uh, the other thing we do know, though, is that God is not mocked, and a man will reap what he sows. And so the leadership of uh, the nation which has perpetrated this activity will uh, come to account. And if they don't repent before the Lord, uh, there will be severe consequences eternally for them. God knows how to reserve the unjust under judgment for the great day. Uh, Peter and Jude both tell us that. And so knowing that and seeing the previous examples of that in, in um, Egypt and the Exodus, uh, you see just a, a small example of that in Herod in Acts chapter 12 when he thought himself to be a god and uh, God, the angel struck him and he died and was eaten by worms. Very horrible, painful end for him in the physical life, not to mention his spiritual death for all eternity. So <clears throat> these things may not get uh, adjudicated in the speed that we would like them. I mean, I would like it to be like this, you know, swift punishment for the one who is evil is poured out upon the world. But um, we can be sure that although God's punishment is not always swift, it is sure. And so we just trust the Lord to, uh, to do his will. As for our side, um, there are uh, reasons why this sort of thing is happening. There are weaknesses that have been exposed here uh, in the West. Uh, there are follies that are abounding. Um, you know, there are misplaced priorities, misplaced worship, which has led uh, to this uh, sort of thing. I was sharing with the men yesterday that Whenever you worship something that is not God, you're going to have problems. The world in the left and the west has been worshiping Mother Earth, and we call it by the name environmentalism. 
and that has led us to have a kind of unilateral response to uh, issues of the environment and um, pulling ourselves, holding ourselves back, in other words, from like the fossil fuel thing, uh, use, good stewardship of that. And so uh, we have allowed the other side of that equation, namely Russia, to profit greatly. And that is one of the reasons why they have the resources that they have now. They've been doing this for years, uh, planning this sort of thing and strengthening themselves that way. And so, um, you know, the, the other thing is, you know, when you worship at the altar of secular humanism uh, and you think that, you know, you can solve all of your problems. I've given these illustrations before, like we're going to solve, uh, you know, racial sin by, you know, just... DEIing ourselves to death till we get it, or you know, teaching CRT in the schools, or if we think we're in charge of COVID and we can control it, you know, by our fancy scientific means. Uh, when you worship at that altar, you find out you don't have enough resources to deal with the problems that come your way. And so that's where we're at today on our side, the follies that uh, people are following after, the idols, the uh, wrong things that people are thinking, and, uh, and just flat-out misplaced priorities. I mean, we're, we're uh, you know, playing in the, you know, in the mud puddle on the playground, and some of these guys are thinking about how to take over the world, and we're just clueless, you know, as a society. Um, we, you know, entertain ourselves to death, while these people strategize about how they can take over, you know, their neighbors. And it's really a sad situation. We need strategic thinkers. We need serious people. Uh, and we're led by a lot of <clears throat> people that aren't very serious. You know, they're, they're really, uh, it's a sad, sad situation. I, I don't want to speak evil of those people. Um, but in our society, the rulers are supposed to be we the people, and uh, we can speak about our servants in a way that is accurate to what they are doing and uh, express dissatisfaction at the way that they are serving us. And uh, that is certainly valid to do that. So those are some thoughts. I don't know. I mean, there's some encouragement there. There's some uh, hopelessness there <laughs> because if we're looking to humans to solve this problem, these, these kinds of issues, <laughs> we have a... We better look at another place. You know, we really got to look to the Lord. And uh, if people were guided by God and and uh, and asked Him for wisdom and guidance, like Solomon did in our passage tonight, we would have a much different kind of situation than we do now. But alas, we do not. So, what are you going to do when you're co-ruling with Christ in the kingdom, and He gives you a little section of the world to rule over, ten cities or five cities or whatever? Pray for wisdom. Yeah, uh, look at the textbook <laughs> and any, any further instructions that he gives during the kingdom and, and rule well for him. And uh, those that are ruling with him will have a great capacity to do so, being redeemed and in glorified bodies to reign with Christ. And so, uh, you know, we look forward to that. Take lessons from this, uh, you know, and, and teach your children, for example. I was... Uh, Thankful for the example that I heard about uh, Brother Snowberger when uh, he was a young boy, uh, 9-11 happened, which is hard for me to imagine because I'm fully into adult years at that time. But uh, his dad sat him down in front of the television and said, you watch. 
because his dad knew that there would be people who would downplay it, deny it. I mean, why did, why did Eisenhower order pictures to be taken of the concentration camps? Among other things, because he knew that people would in the future deny that that even happened. And you know what? He was right. People do deny that the Holocaust happened today. And uh, even though we have the photographic evidence and the eyewitness testimony evidence of people that were there. So uh, it's important for us to pass on to our children the raw depravity of humankind so that they understand that and they know what kind of world they're going into. I mean, we can't shield our young people from this kind of thing. You know, we don't want them to be playing in the mud puddle and, and entertaining themselves to death until something really bad happens that they didn't observe was coming because they were just, you know, out in outer space in a fog. So it does teach us to, uh, to be sober-minded about these kinds of matters. <clears throat> Anything else? Okay. All right, let's turn our Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 15 tonight, Matthew and chapter 15. And uh, although some of our time has been consumed with the questions, I think it was valuable for us to spend a few minutes doing that. But now we'll turn our attention to a more in-depth look at a particular, particular passage of Scripture in Matthew 15. We began studying this, if you were with us online or here on Wednesday night, regarding uh, what I titled in my message, Clean Hands and a Clean Heart. Clean Hands and a Clean Heart. And uh, the scribes and the Pharisees uh, are introduced to us at the beginning of chapter 15, and they criticize the Lord by asking a question, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And if you've been in the faith for any length of time, this smacks as a ridiculous question, as it should, but they asked it because they really believed that that was important. That was important to them. And Jesus replied and said, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? I carefully pointed out on Wednesday, and I want you to rehearse in your mind, that they were asking, Why do they transgress the tradition? And Jesus was asking, Why do you transgress the Bible? Okay. And so tonight our message is really part two of what we looked at before, and that is, under the heading in the notes, which are online if you're looking at them, Roman numeral three, I think it is there, text or tradition? Text or tradition, which are you going to take? The text of the Bible or the tradition of the elders? So let me read on here. Uh, He explains, For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. There's another capital offense, my friends, cursing parents. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God. Then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites, he says. Well did Isaiah the prophet, sorry, well did Isaiah prophesy about you saying, these people draw near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me and in vain they worship me teaching as doctrines, the commandments of men. Now, that's the section that I want to focus on tonight, uh, verses 3 to 9, but let me just carry on for a little bit more here in the reading. 
And he, so Jesus calls the multitude to himself and he deals with the, the, what we'll call the presenting issue first. What's the presenting issue? Washing hands, right? As our sister's just over there rubbing her hands and putting lotion on them, right? But she's not washing. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're talking about washing hands. So the Lord turns to the multitude and says, hear and understand. Not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, that defiles the man. Then his disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And I think what they're talking about there is they were offended when you called them hypocrites, not just about going in, the stuff going in and out of the mouth. But he answered and said to them, every plant which my heavenly father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And in that situation, he says, if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into the ditch. Then Peter answered and said to him, explain the parable, this parable to us. So Jesus said, are you also still without understanding? Okay, so now I think he's talking about the, uh, Peter I think is talking about what the Lord said to the crowd. And he said it's a parable. It's really a very short kind of statement, a, a proverb or whatever, if you will, about not what goes in, but what comes out is what defiles. And Peter says, hey, that's a parable. Please explain that to us. And Jesus kind of rebukes him and says, are you still without understanding? Because he said in verse 10, listen and understand what I'm telling you. Listen and understand. You know, hear and understand about this going into the mouth and coming out of the mouth. Uh, The food going in doesn't defile the words. And really what he means is the actions that come out of one's life are what defile a person. And so Jesus graciously does answer his question. He says, do you not yet understand? Okay, there's, there it is again, understanding. Look, if you're reading the Bible, you have to go for understanding, not just reading the words and saying, oh, I passed my eyes over the words. Understand what it says. Don't you understand yet that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? So he simplifies the alimentary canal by calling it the stomach, at least in this translation, but as we know, it's esophagus, stomach, small intestine, large intestine, and it passes out. Uh, The waste products leave us. And so he says that's what happens. Um, But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. Him. So he deals with the presenting issue, washing of hands. No, it's not significant. And it's not important. It's not needed. It's not breaking any, any right tradition. And then this in itself has these major implications that we saw about dietary laws today. We talked about the Hebrew roots movement again briefly. We talked about those who would elevate a, uh, a law about food to the position where we have to obey it today. I'll say something more about elevating the traditions of men in this message uh, as the Lord gives us time. But um, that's what the implications of that are. And we tie that in with Mark seven nineteen, thus declaring all foods clean. Uh, we tied it in with Acts chapter 10, where God told Peter, rise, kill, and eat all these unclean animals. And Peter said, no, I haven't ever done that before somebody was criticizing my teaching on that by saying this, well, don't you know what Peter 
told the meaning of that. It wasn't about eating food. It was that he called no man common or unclean. But my friends, on that sheet that was let down from heaven, there were not men. There were animals. And the reason that the men are unclean in the eyes of the Jew is that they eat pig and other things. And so if the food is cleansed, then the people who eat the food are therefore not to be declared unclean. And so they're not to call any man common or unclean because of the stuff that goes in to their mouth. And so this is a revolution to the uh, manner of thinking of the Jewish person. And I think it has to do with something that I might as well just say right now. It's at the end of my notes, but I'm going to carry it forward because it seems to fit here. The question arises, how can the Lord do this? I mean, he's telling the Pharisees that you're breaking the law of God by your tradition. They could just as easily, wrongly, but they could just as easily come to him and say, you're breaking the law of God by saying we can eat whatever we please. But the law says we cannot. Well, as I've said before, God is in charge of what instructions are current and how he can, he can change the instructions if he so pleases to do. But listen to this. The question is, why was it, is it true that Jesus was advocating instead of fulfilling the law, he was advocating breaking the law by saying you could eat whatever? Why was it sinful to eat certain foods in the Old Testament? Have you ever thought of that question before? Why was it sinful? Just take pork, for example. When you eat a ham sandwich, are you in sin? No, because you believe what the New Testament says about that matter. But why? Why were the Jews in sin if they did that? The Matthew 15 here indicates to me that the, it's not the food itself that was the problem. There is nothing inherently sinful about pork or about animals with certain cloven hooves that didn't chew the cud or, or whatever. There's nothing inherently or intrinsically sinful about those foods. So what precisely was wrong with eating them? Was it that eating them was a violation of the command of God? Yes, that's true. Even though the thing commanded was not a sin to do in and of itself? What do I mean by that? In other words, God said, don't eat that. It doesn't matter what that is. If you do eat that, that's a sin. But is that thing itself sinful? No, it's not. Pork is not sinful. Pork is pork. Okay. Um, the sin was symbolic, in other words, not intrinsic. Well, what was it symbolic of? Well, it was to distinguish the Jews from the Gentiles. They were to be separate from the nations and not be like them. Okay, so those two, two aspects already. So the food, it was not intrinsic sin. It was symbolic to distinguish the people of Israel from the Gentiles. Was, was it, did it have to do with the association of those food with the Gentiles? I think so. Because if you're you know, um, marketing in those foods, if you're eating those foods, if you're having table fellowship with people who are eating those foods that are pagans, what does that mean? I mean, you're, you're palling, you know, chumming around with people that are pagan idolaters? 
Well, that's not what God wanted for his people Israel. What kind of, that sort of stuff led the people of Israel astray, and they started to have wives and husbands from other nations that were pagans and led them into idolatry, and it became to be a big mess. So it, it prevented deeper partnership with the pagans. Um, some have suggested the laws had to do with uh, health reasons. And as I've, I, you know, I've heard this before, and I just have wondered, like, um, is that really the case? You know, some have said, well, you know, obviously pork is kind of dangerous to eat, right? Well, I mean, poultry is dangerous to eat if you don't prepare it, clean it, and cook it properly, right? What is it in poultry? It's uh, salmonella and pork, trichinosis, right, is it? Or whatever else stuff could be in there. But it's not that, it's not that, that some foods are inherently more healthy than another in that sense. I mean, it, it almost smacks of like an accommodationism to think that the Jewish people were not smart enough to know how to cook pork properly for it to be safe. To say that it was merely a health reason. I mean, if it were merely a health reason, then we shouldn't eat it today. But we do without at least seemingly massive health problems most of the time. Now, it's not that we should, you know, eat pork every meal, but you know that. You're not supposed to eat anything every meal, right? So I don't, I doubt the health reason thing. I mean, it's never said in Scripture that it's a health reason, is it? So we, we, if we're going to have fidelity to the Word of God, if it were to say that it, there's health reasons, then yes, we would understand that, but it doesn't say that. So bottom line is the food itself was never sinful. It was a decree of God for that particular time that the Jews had to follow to distinguish themselves from the Gentiles and to demonstrate obedience to God. But that demonstration and that distinction is eliminated in the gospel. Because why? The church is now a body of what? Jews and Gentiles together. So yes, we can fellowship over a ham sandwich if you're a Jew and I'm a Gentile. Okay? And I'm not trying to make light of the law of God. I'm just trying to explain how is it that it was not right then, but it is right now because of that issue of separation. We have plenty of other commands of God to be separate from evil, don't we? It doesn't have to do with food, though. Paul says there are some in, in first, uh, I think it's 1 Timothy 4, that talk about uh, abstaining from marriage and and certain foods, and he says, look, as foods are to be you know, given thanks for and they're sanctified by the Word of God, what we're looking at here, the Word of God and prayer, giving thanks for them, and then you can participate with a clean uh, conscience about those things. Um, but there are plenty of other ways we need to be separate from evil. Are you? Are you concerned about that? I hope we're as concerned about our being holy as the unbelieving Pharisees were concerned about washing their hands. So we go back in the text to, uh, to ask this question, text or tradition. Amid teaching here that the food cannot defile a person, the Lord rebukes the Pharisees for their Bible-busting tradition. Bible-busting tradition. The hand-washing tradition is not the highest on the scale of offenses, however. The Lord points out another that is far worse. That is a sinful, rebellious pattern of all the Pharisaical teachings, which is the direct violation of God's law by the means of what I call sophistry. What is sophistry? Um, 
One of the Supreme Court justices used that phrase. Brother James, you have to tell, remind me the, the, the opinion. I, I wonder if it was Scalia who used something about the idea of sophistry, and I think it had to do with the, um, the case about uh, uh, the Affordable Care Act. But in any case, it was sometime around then when that opinion came out. But sophistry, I've, I've liked that word ever since then because what it is is the use of fallacious arguments, especially with the intention of deceiving, especially with the intention of deceiving. It always, it always graveled me that the, uh, in, in public, the, uh, the Affordable Care Act was uh, talked about as if there was a penalty attached. I think it was this way, that there was a penalty attached to it. But then when they argued it before the court, to, in order to get the court to pass it through, they talked about the same thing as a tax, and it wasn't a penalty then, it was a tax. So they used this, this fallacious argument trying to identify one thing as another thing in order to get it through the system so that they could get what they wanted. And what you have here is the Pharisees calling their law-breaking by another name. What, what was their law-breaking? Their law-breaking was, we don't have to support our parents in their old age. They spun it, okay, made an explanation for it, soothed their conscious, conscience with this foolishness, and then went on their merry way. Okay? So they were going to find out what the wages of spin was. Okay? They spun this up to make it look like it was okay. In other words, what they actually did was they said, well, here's the law to honor your parents. Here's, here's about giving a gift to God, which they called korban in Hebrew. It was a dedicated gift to the Lord. And they said, well, we'll do this in order to avoid doing this. So they took the two, two uh, instructions of God and pitted them against each other, put one over the other one so they didn't have to do this one. So what were they, what were they doing? Well, they were breaking the law of Exodus 20, right in the middle of the Ten Commandments where the Lord said to Moses and to the people of Israel, honor your father and your mother. Uh, obey them and honor them is the idea. And then in Exodus 21, 17, God said, those who curse father or mother shall surely be put to death. So there's the positive command in the Ten Commandments. Then there's the penalty or could say the negative side of it in Exodus 21, one chapter after the Ten Commandments. This shows us that God is very serious about the maintenance of family relationships and the family structure in the society. Doesn't it tell that to you? He is deadly serious about the maintenance of the family. So people today who come in and break up the family, whether it's you know, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder, or whether it's the government coming in and, and inducing uh, perverse incentives for people to remain unmarried, to have more children so that they don't have to have, uh, so they can get more government check, you know, and uh, money and all of that. Whoever goes in and breaks up that family structure, very displeasing to the Lord. Now we drop down to verse 12 for a moment, and when the Lord said all this to the people, to the Pharisees, they became offended by that. Uh, they were highly offended. They did not be, appreciate being called out for their wickedness. It exposed them for what they really are. Now, some of them really believed in their own sophistry. This is, the, this is the deadly thing about this sophistry, this fallacious arguments to de, with the intent to deceive. Sometimes the people don't actually 
they, they've imbibed those arguments from others, and then they have begun to believe them themselves, and so they fall into self-deception. Remember that concept I've talked about several times? So they are actually believing what is, was initially created in order to get around this, this law by, with an intention to deceive. Now they're maybe a generation or two or three later. They actually believe it. And so they weren't only deceiving others, they may well have been deceiving themselves. And people who are self-deceived become enraged when you expose their self-deception to them. And so they wanted to eliminate Jesus. He was upsetting their union shop, and he didn't like it. they didn't like it one little bit. You know, you, you, you know what I'm talking about. A group of people get together, and they, this is how things are. And then when somebody comes from the outside and says, no, that's not how things are, they say, excuse me, that's how things are around here, whether you like it or not. Or else we're going to bust your kneecaps kind of a deal. That's what they were doing. They couldn't stand being called out for their wickedness. Now, being offended at someone calling you out for sin is not a good indicator of spiritual health. Not a good indicator at all. It indicates you're very sick, if not still dead in sin. Now, after you think about a rebuke for a minute, I know the initial response of the flesh comes out, but after you think about it for a minute, you should be thankful that someone wants to help you by lovingly pointing out an area of need. Now, the Lord says that those who are offended by His words demonstrate that they are not plants planted by the Heavenly Father. I mean, if somebody today says, look, I just don't believe the Bible. I'm a Christian, but I just don't believe all that stuff. Well, don't be deceived. They're not a Christian at all. People that are born-again believers don't say, I reject the Bible or some parts of the Bible. Real believers say, I embrace the Word of God because the Spirit of God who's in them causes them to so embrace that Word. So the Lord says, hey, they are not planted by my heavenly Father. They will be uprooted. Now, this is the short version of what he talked about in Matthew 13 with the wheat and the tares. With the tares, they would be uprooted, gathered together, dried out, burned up. This is just uprooted. It's just a shorthand for the same exact thing. Furthermore, at some point, the people who reject the clear word of God are given over by God to the death-dealing effects of sin. Verse 14 indicates this, the end effect of depravity. Let them alone. There it is, turning them over to their own wickedness. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into the ditch. This is what is so deadly about this. People who are self-deceived are blind, and then they begin to gather people behind them who are blind, and they just all go down you know, the wide path to destruction. Merrily, 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 you know, life is but a dream. No, life is but a nightmare when they come to the end of it and find out that it wasn't what they thought that it was. They, peep, they, they make sophisticated sounding arguments for their sin, but they're actually blind and foolish, claiming to be leading others, but they're just leading them into the pit. Go back to verse number five. They made these arguments that they were making a gift to God. And so what they did was, and you know, it just looks to me like I'm not going to be able to finish tonight, so I'm going to make this little quick point and we're going to close up for the evening. But 
what they did was they designated their wealth as a gift to the Lord. So in uh, nonprofit finances today, there's a very important concept of designated or restricted funds, restricted money. So, for example, in a mission organization, if a donor gives money for a certain missionary, that is, we might call in financial terms, sacrosanct. That money cannot be touched for any other purpose. I know of a mission agency that got into trouble and they began using those funds designated for those missionaries to cover operating expenses. And then when those funds were called for and actually audited, they found that they were missing. Well, that mission agency ended up folding and the missionaries lost money, which was important to them in their ministry, to their retirement, to their taxes, to their medical, to their passage fund, to their working funds and all of that. They violated that sacrosanct notion of designation, the donor designation for that money. What was happening here was that they were doing a kind of a reverse thing. They were designating it and saying that money is sacrosanct and cannot be used for what it should be used for. So say I have an estate, I mean uh, um, savings, and my parents are getting old and they need assistance. Maybe they lived hand to mouth, maybe they're, they've run out of finances and they need care now. Well, instead of instead of adding on to my house or buying another house or putting them somewhere or helping them pay for their medications or whatever, I'm going to designate my money to God as a gift and then use that as an excuse to say, well, my money's all designated. I can't use it to help you. So that's what was happening here. When when you, um, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God. So there's the, the, the sophistry of it, you know, the, using a, a, a spin to get something to not seem like it is what it really is. Um, so I'm going to stop right there, uh, and then we'll finish maybe on Wednesday with the, with the details about this. But that's, what, that's basically what was happening. They were either laundering the money through the temple and benefiting from it, or, or they were just simply out of spite, saying, this is a gift to God, it's going into the treasury, and you can't benefit from it. Like, suppose that they were a son who was an ungrateful wretch, and they were angry at their parents, and they said, I'm giving all my wealth, I'm not going to help you, you're on your own. You see that? So it would be a a way for them in anger to prevent themselves from having to support their parents. We'll talk more about this on Wednesday again, but... Uh, very sinful approach to things. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us as we ponder these truths. We know, Lord, that the Bible tells us that uh, children do not lay up for the parents, but parents for the children. But we know also by uh, example here in the Bible and personal experience in our lives and uh, seeing how things are that oftentimes parents need assistance. And uh, so the parents do save up for the kids, uh, the kids rather save up for the parents to help them and requite some of that love that was shown them for their first, oh, say, 18 years when the parents did everything for their children. And so help us, Lord, to uh, take this and think it through. And as we finish it, next time we have opportunity to 
um, tie, it all, tie up all the loose ends and understand what is being said here. We thank you for today, for each one online watching, for those that will watch afterwards. Lord, for uh, those that are here, we pray, Lord, for the world tonight in the middle of the night. May you save some lives in Kiev and elsewhere in Ukraine and um, just stymie like you stymied the Egyptians in the crossing of the Red Sea, that you would stymie those uh, uh, aggressors, that they would not be able to make the kind of progress that they wish to make. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good night, folks. We're going to close up shop and let you go on your way. I hope you have a good night tonight, and God bless you and keep you. Amen.